Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Let me ask you a question as we get started. What do you think God thinks of you? What do you think God thinks of you? And is the answer to that question informed by by scripture or by something else, by your feelings, by whatever it might be? What does God think of you? Is he pleased with you? Or is he disappointed in you? Is he cheering you on or is he just angry with you all the time? Does he just put up with you as one of his children? These are really significant questions if you think about it. Maybe you've never thought of it, but I want you to now. It's a significant question because the answer to it says a lot about how we approach God. It's going to tell something about how we pray, how we worship, how we operate within the body of Christ, and more. What does God think of you? We're going to find out this morning in our study of Zephaniah. So go ahead, grab your Bibles, and let's turn there. The book of Zephaniah in that minor prophet section. If you're visiting with us this morning, obviously we are in a series called Return to Me, a study of the minor prophets. We're taking one per Sunday, and this is week number what? Eight. Eight, eight, eight. So we have one more next Sunday, Habakkuk, and then we're going to take a break for our Easter series. And after we get back from Israel, Lord willing, we'll pick up on our last three minor prophets on the backside. So as you're turning there and trying to find Zephaniah, I know it's not easy. It's in those pages we don't often open up to. We're going to take a few minutes this morning, as we've been doing every week, to provide some important historical context for his prophecy. Now, last Sunday, we transitioned in the, period, uh, the periods of Israel's history from the divided kingdom period to the solitary kingdom period. And the solitary kingdom period is marked by these two very important dates you see on this timeline on the screen. And by the way, these are dates that every Christian should know. I know that not all of us are history buffs, but these are important dates in the history of God's people Israel. So we have in the northern kingdom, the fall of Israel to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And what's coming is the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom to the Babylonians in the year 586. So that marks out the history of the solitary kingdom, these two incredibly traumatic events in the life of God's people. And we'll get to the fall of Judah next Sunday when we look at Habakkuk. So the bulk of the solitary kingdom period is marked by the reign of four Judean kings, two godly and two wicked, beginning with Hezekiah, who we looked at briefly last Sunday. Hezekiah, as we saw, was at times foolish sometimes overly pragmatic, but ultimately the Bible describes him as a man with exemplary faith. Here's what 2 Kings 18 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. Listen, for he clung to the Lord. What a great statement. If you could put that on your tombstone, in all of the ups and downs in life, he or she clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments. Now, unfortunately, that same love for God and for his word did not trickle down to his son, Manasseh. So we're going to start to put some dates up here. You've seen this the last couple of Sundays. Hezekiah and Manasseh are critical to understand in this solitary kingdom period. In the pink there, you see the prophets who were sent to try to call the people to return to the Lord. Manasseh 
was the most wicked king to ever sit on the throne of Judah. 2 Kings 21 describes for us just how spiritually dark the period was during his reign. Here's just a list of some of the things. Manasseh rebuilt all of the false worship sites that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Dad brought them down, I put them back up. He built altars for Baal and for the Canaanite goddess Asherah. He even, get this now, put a carved image of Asherah in the temple. You guys know something about how holy the temple is. The court says, and they get more holy as you get to the center, right? To the holy of holies. Manasseh put a carved image of Asherah in the temple courts. And one of the great understatements, the text says, it provoked God to anger. You can understand why. He encouraged and practiced himself child sacrifice to the god Molech. The Bible says that Manasseh seduced the people of Judah to do more evil than even the Canaanites had done before them. And as a result, here's God's indictment. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and has made Judah sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and on Judah that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. So what's coming in the future, and we look at that red date there in 586, what's coming is that Judah is going to follow after the house of Ahab, destroyed because of its idolatry. And the the measure of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, will be measured to Judah. They too will be taken into captivity. And whenever I hear this story, it amazes me to think that for some reason, and we know because God is sovereign, but in the minds of the people of Judah, they didn't learn their lesson from watching Israel fall. You would think they were the witness to the invasion and the slaughter and the deportation. You would have thought they made a spiritual connection to say, oh, I see apostasy and God's judgment. That they would make that connection and therefore repent of their sins, but they didn't. And in the year 642 BC, Manasseh's son, Amon comes to the throne. I made him small because he only lasts two years. He is so wicked and so hated that he is assassinated by his own servants in his house. He serves for two years. Now, in the ancient world, when a king is assassinated, some crazy things can happen. Instability, uh, uh, tension, all kinds of things. A power struggle often breaks out amongst the surviving members of the royal family to see who might gain control, or sometimes a a, a noble or a military general who has a following will will launch a coup and try to take power and change the line, the dynasty forever, or the people will make sure that the line is continued, the same family line, but here's the problem. If that king who was assassinated was younger, his children are going to be young, and so what you often end up with is a boy king. And that's the case in this situation. 2 Kings 21 tells us that after Ammon was assassinated, his son Josiah came to the throne at the age of eight years old. Eight years old. He is placed on the throne of Judah in the year 640 BC. So now we have our timeline complete here. Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah. Josiah is going to die in 609. We'll get to that story in a second. 
And then those last 23-something years are utterly chaotic in the, in the life of Judah. Four kings are going to come to power, all of them wicked, and they're going to lead Judah right to disaster. So Josiah is the last great king of Judah, and he's worth studying. So the boy king sits on the throne. Now, this is where the story takes an unexpected turn. After 50 or so years of wickedness in the land, eight-year-old Josiah comes to the throne. You would expect things to continue down that path, downward. But Josiah turns out to be a godly reformer in the mold of his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Now, how did that happen? The Bible doesn't tell us. I wish I knew. But it's interesting that of all the kings in this, in this section, Scripture mentions the name of Josiah's mother. Now, it could be just because he was young, but her name is mentioned. Is it possible that it was his mother behind the scenes, and every mom can say amen to this, right, who is training their son behind the scenes and raising him as a godly man? We don't know, but that's entirely possible. Whatever human vessel God used to change the heart of Josiah, here's what we know. By the time he is 16, 2 Chronicles 34 says he had begun to purposely seek the Lord. And he set out to institute all kinds of reforms as Hezekiah had done. He purged Judah and Jerusalem of all the pagan altars that his dad had built. So they go up, they go down, they go up, they come down. He got rid of all of these altars. He even got rid, remember how we talked weeks ago about the false worship site at Bethel that Jeroboam had built? Josiah tears it down, not only tears it down, but grinds the stones to dust. The stones that made up that worship site, he grinds them to dust as a symbol of how wicked it was. He tears down everything related to the worship of Baal. He even dug up the, the bones of the false priests that had served at these sites, dug up their bones and burned them. Josiah was serious about reform in the land. Now keep in mind, this would have required great courage. This is still a young man, inexperienced man, and you can imagine after 50 plus years of wickedness and idolatry in the land, do you think there were, there were powerful people in Judah that weren't happy about these reforms? I'm sure that Josiah faced a lot of opposition in his kingdom, but he persisted in doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, huge turning point in his life, in his 18th year, 18th year as king, he would have been what age? Math majors? 26, okay? About the same age as a whole bunch of you right here. So think about that for a second. At the age of 26, Josiah sends officials to locate and to recruit the best carpenters and stonemasons and Levites to do a full refurbishment of the temple in Jerusalem because it had fallen into disuse and disrepair under his wicked father, Manasseh. And they begin the construction. And during the construction, a priest by the name of Hilkiah discovers something in the rubble. Who knows what it was? The book of the law. Stop for a second. I want you to think about that. They found the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, the book of Moses, right? They found it. That means that the previous 50 years, the people of Judah, living in God's promised land, had no copy of the law, not even in the temple. They didn't know about it. They had no idea what God required of them. Think about that for a second. Now, I'm sure there were some in the older generation of Judah who had sort of a distant memory of the law, but through idolatry and, and, and through all of the stuff they were going through, its relevance to their lives had faded away. Nobody was paying attention to it. It had been lost and forgotten. But for the 26-year-old Josiah, this was literally a revelation. 
And so listen to 2 Chronicles 34. I'll put it on the screen. It says, the, so they, they bring the book of the law into the king on his throne and they read it to him. And he says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes in grief. Then the king commanded his officials saying, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. We looked at Deuteronomy 28, didn't we? Weeks ago. The cursings and blessings of obedience and disobedience. Suddenly, Josiah is incredibly aware. Hey, I'm ruling a nation that sits under the judgment of this powerful God, Yahweh. Can you imagine what it would, must have been like for Josiah to hear these words? No wonder he tears his robes. So Josiah goes on, he reinstitutes the Passover. There's a great celebration in Jerusalem. And at this point in the story, you're thinking, well, good, Judah must be on the path to recovery. They're going to put apostasy in the rearview mirror and they're going to move forward. But the reality is, in spite of this positive turn of events, even Josiah's reforms could not turn away the wrath of God. It could only postpone it. The 50 plus years of wickedness under Manasseh and Ammon had sealed Judah's fate. And tragically, Josiah is going to die in the year 609 before, before all of his reforms can be completed. And we touched on this story last week. Some of you may have glazed over. You, you missed the whole story of the Battle of Carchemish. And you thought, well, why, why should I care? Well, this is where that battle now comes into play. So let me refresh your memory. We'll do this really quickly. After the fall of Nineveh in the year 612, which was prophesied by Nahum, very good. The remnant of the Assyrian army flees to the west, trying to not be annihilated by the army that's pursuing them, who are who? The Babylonians. So I'm going I'm to put our map up here. So that re small red dot there is Nineveh. You see the Babylonians, they came up north, they attacked and, and conquered Nineveh, and the, the Assyrians, the, the remnant of their army fled to the west, and they're going to go all the way to that big red dot, which is Carchemish, which is in Hittite territory. Today, it's interestingly enough, it's, an, it's a military intelligence city for the Turkish army. So that's, where, that's what's happening in Carchemish today. But this battle is incredibly important. So Nabopolassar, the king of the Babylonians, is chasing the Assyrian army, and they're going to make a last stand at Carchemish. Nabopolassar wants to put the final death knell and the dagger in the heart of the Assyrian army. Now, in the meantime, there's other nations in the region watching this and saying, you know what? I'm really glad that the Assyrians are, are, are about to die, but if we just exchange one bully for another and allow the Babylonians to grow in power, well, that's not good for us either. So one nation in particular decides, I'm going to do what I can to check the power of Nabopolassar and the Babylonians, and that is the Egyptians. So I'm going to show you, this is basically what they did. The Egyptian army moves north out of Egypt, and look what they have to go through to get to Carchemish. Straight through the land of Judah, the blue dot. Straight through there. 609 B.C., Pharaoh Necho II takes his army, and he arrives at the border of Judah with only one request. I need to pass through to get up to Carchemish. That's it. So here's, what, here's how the account goes. This is in 2 Chronicles 35. It says, after this, when Josiah had put the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates. 
And Josiah went out to engage him. So you can picture this. You've got chariots now opposing each other. They're shouting at each other from the plain of Megiddo. Now, we've heard of the plain of Megiddo several times already. This is the place where ultimately uh, Armageddon is going to take place. Many wars have been fought here, and they meet on on the plain of Megiddo. You can picture it from a distance, from chariot to chariot. Nico sends messengers to Josiah. He can see him in the distance. The messenger says this, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war, and God has ordered, ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me so that he will not destroy you. Interesting message from a pagan king. God, Elohim, not Yahweh, but Elohim is with me. You should hear what I'm saying and let me pass. Here's how the story ends. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo. Verse 23, the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in the second chariot, which he had, brought him to Jerusalem, where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Now the question is always asked, why? Why didn't he just let Pharaoh pass? And unfortunately, again, the text doesn't tell us, so we historians speculate, and I think this is probably logical. Josiah, at this point, is feeling great relief that his, his oppressor, the Assyrians, are being destroyed, and this is the moment for Judah to flex its muscles, to say, we are not going to be a vassal state to anybody else. We're going to maintain our independence, and if he can stand his ground at, at Megiddo and repel the Egyptians, he gets credibility in the region to be left alone. But of course, it's a miscalculation, and it costs him his life, and it marks the end of the beginning of the end for Judah as a people and a nation. As I said, the next 23 years of their life is going to be marked by chaos and disaster. We'll look at that story next week. So, are you still in Zephaniah 1? Good. I just want to give you that, that background because Josiah is a really important character in the history of the kings. Verse 1-1 of Zephaniah says, The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. I love that name. I dare you to name your, your, your child Cushi. I love it. Son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. In the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so the name Zephaniah means the Lord hides. Now, I've been meaning to bring up the Hebrew names for a number of weeks, and I keep running out of time, uh, but I think we're going to do it today. I want to talk just a little bit linguistically about all these Hebrew names, which maybe you're hearing for the first time. Have you ever noticed how many Old Testament names end with the letter I-A-H? Zephaniah, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Obadiah, Zechariah, and the list goes on. Is it a conspiracy to confuse us? I used to think that I'm like, really, Lord, couldn't we have a couple simple names in here? What's going on? Well, I want you to notice that that suffix, I-A-H, is pronounced Yah, Hezekiah, okay? So it's a reference to Yahweh. So just, just something simple. So let's look at Zechariah, for example. If you combine the Hebrew verb zaker, which means to remember, right, 
And then you add that suffix yah, you get his name in Hebrew, Zechariah. And then you anglicize that and it becomes Zechariah. Okay? But that means the Lord remembers because that's what that particular verb means. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. So you see this, and, and this, if you want to do a word study on these names, it's actually really rich and interesting. But that's why there's so many IAH names in Scripture. It's a reference to Yah, to Yahweh. You also see a lot of L's at the end of names. L, we're talking about Ezekiel and Samuel and Daniel. What does L mean in Hebrew? It's the generic name for God. It's not the covenant name Yahweh, but it's the generic name of God. And whenever it's in the context of the Old Testament, it's a reference to the God of Israel. So we take Samuel, for example. See that in Hebrew? Shemuel. Shemuel, from the Hebrew verb shema, which means to hear. And so what you get when you put it together in English, you get Samuel, God has heard. Make sense? So you see yahs and you see els. And then the last thing I want to point out is just, have you noticed how many Old Testament names begin with the letter J? Just the kings themselves will drive you crazy. Jeroboam, Jehoram, Jotham, Jehoash, Jehu, Josiah, Jehoiakim. You can go on and on and on. All of these J names. Why so many J's? Well, there's no J in Hebrew. It's a Y sound. It's pronounced with a Y sound in English. And once again, it's a reference to, to Yahweh. So you take, for example, everyone's favorite J name, Jehoshaphat. We say Jehoshaphat, right? In Hebrew, it's Yehoshaphat. And it comes from the Hebrew word Shaphat, which means to judge. So Jehoshaphat is Yahweh has judged. So that's why all of these funny names. And, and now, you know, now you can take that knowledge and impress your friends at parties. <laughs> all right. Just a little bit of culture. Always helps. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1, 1. That's all we know about this man, Zephaniah. That's all we know. The most interesting thing is how he traces his genealogy, right? That's very unusual. Back four generations to one very important man, King Hezekiah. So that makes him, as far as we know, the only prophet in Scripture that has royal blood coursing through his veins. He's related to King Hezekiah. And what's cool to think about, we can't be sure of this, but we can ask the question, because of his family tie to Hezekiah, is it possible that he was at all the king's parties? That he had access to the throne when Josiah was ruling? Like, hey, cuz, right? He could come in and talk to, talk to the king. Is it possible that it was Zephaniah that was a part of exhorting Josiah to make all these reforms? Could be. But based on the content of his prophecy, which is very harsh, it seems likely that this particular prophecy that we're reading today was delivered prior to and probably promoted the reforms that Josiah puts into place. And if that's true, we have to know that Zephaniah overlaps in ministry with Jeremiah. So God has two voices in Judah taking place all at the same time, both Zephaniah and Jeremiah. We'll talk more about Jeremiah next week. So let's consider the content now of what Zephaniah has to declare. He's very much like Joel in the sense that he is focused on the day of the Lord. Okay, remember we looked at Joel in week number two. The day of the Lord, a time of judgment and wrath upon the earth. Remember Joel? Joel had three views of this, right? He had a present day view, which was this locust plague that had come upon the land. And then he had a second view in the future. He said, but something worse is coming, a foreign 
army, an invader who will come and, like those locusts, swarm into the land of Judah. And then even further out, number three, he had a view of, of this day of the Lord, this, this great and awful and terrible day of the Lord, this spectacular display of the righteous outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. So he had three things that he was looking at. Now, Zephaniah is similar, but with two unique differences. Number one, obviously, Joel was talking to the northern kingdom about judgment. Zephaniah is talking to Judah in the south. But more importantly, this is fascinating to me, Zephaniah extends his vision beyond even the millennial kingdom to the complete end of the planet to the complete end of all things, okay? So we talk about there's both a local aspect to Zephaniah's ministry and an ultimate aspect, and we want to look at both of those things today. So quick reminder before we get into this, why is God angry? Why is God angry? Why is he so full of wrath? It's really important that we understand this, you guys. Why is he so angry? Why is he so full of wrath? It's common to hear people to say, I'm confused. I hear all these people talking about how God is love and how he's merciful. So why does he judge and why does he destroy? As believers who trust in the word, we need to understand that question and have a good answer, don't we? Because you can understand where the question comes from and why it can be confusing. So let me just say this again. I said it last week, but it's worth uh, repeating in, in a book like Zephaniah. God is fully loving. And God is fully just. Put those two things together. He's fully loving and he's fully just. He is also fully merciful and he is fully holy. Now this is hard for us to understand because we're not fully anything, are we? We really aren't. We're, we're a flawed, sinful mess mixture of all these things. So it's hard for us to grasp, but God is all of those things fully. And if we're to understand him properly, here's what we can't do. We cannot pit one of his attributes against another. Okay? We cannot say that, well, I wish God were more loving than just, or I wish he were more merciful than holy. He is fully all of those things. Here's the ultimate point. If God is fully just, then he must punish every sin. He cannot look the other way, folks. He cannot just brush things aside or else he fails to be fully just. And therefore, every person who has ever transgressed his law will give an answer for it and will be held to account. And so here's what I always say to my unbelieving friends. I say, look, you may have all kinds of problems with Christianity or with the Bible, but if I can get you down to this one very simple truth is this. Every sin will be accounted for, and someone will pay for it. Would you like that to be you, or would you like that to be another? That's the bottom line, right? Every sin that you've done, God's not going to brush it aside. It will be paid for. Would you like to pay for it, or would you prefer Christ to do it? It's a key question. So let's look at Zephaniah's warning. First, we'll look locally, and then we'll look to the whole earth but look at chapter 1, verse 4. We're just going to read a whole bunch of scripture here today. Let's look at 1, 4. And this is Zephaniah's warning of a local day of the Lord against the land of Judah. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants 
of Jerusalem. And now here come the reasons why. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Now, Baal worship was stubbornly rooted in the land, going way back to the time of the Canaanites, but Ahab and Jezebel had made that worst, right? They had practiced it, it had seeped down into the southern kingdom, and then Manasseh set out to build all these altars to Baal, and it's an abomination before God. Verse 5, and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and that's a reference to worshiping nature. Worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1 when he says, he says, mankind exchanges the glory of the creator for created things. It's an abomination to God. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, which is another name for Molech, which is the national god of the Ammonites who required child sacrifice. But look at the language here. He's talking about people in Judah who bow down to both Yahweh and Molech. Hypocrites, blasphemers. Will God share his glory with something as filthy as Molech? But these are people that want to cover all their bases. If I just worship all the gods, then somehow I'll be okay. God says, no, it's not the way it works. They worship both. Verse 6, and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Guys, here is the core of man's sin, right? Pride and self-sufficiency. This is a people, Judah, who have said, we don't need the Lord. We're fine. We're fine. Now listen, for people like us, I I, I doubt there's anybody here that's going to go out and, and worship Molech. But can we not fall into this trap? I'm fine. I'm doing good. Why do I need to inquire of the Lord? It's dangerous. Pride and self-sufficiency. Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And this is, this is actually a very gruesome reference that you see played out in Revelation 19. The guests that, that God has invited in, who have consecrated are the Babylonian army that's going to come in and slaughter the people. And the sacrifice are the corpses of the people who will be destroyed, such that the birds of the air will fill themselves with their meat. Verse 8, Then it will come about on the, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. Notice how God holds leaders to account people that he puts in positions of power to whom much is given, much is required. And apparently these princes of Judah, would pr- they would prefer to identify with foreign nations and their ways than with Yahweh. That this idea of, of, of clothing themselves, it's not about what, how they dress, it's about the spiritual and religious practices that they put on from the surrounding nations. God is not pleased. Verse nine, and I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. And this is a vision of how the Babylonian army is going to come into the land. They'll come in from the north, and the first gate that they'll come to is the fish gate. And they will break through, and they will come into the second quarter. And at that point, you will hear this loud weeping and wailing from from people all over the land. And the the sound of the, the army coming over the hills into Jerusalem will be deafening. Deafening. 
This is a scary picture. It's a very scary picture that God is laying out here. Now hold that thought. Flip over to chapter 3 now. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here we see another woe oracle. We've seen this twice in the last two Sundays. God says, woe to you. That's serious business. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the tyrannical city. Guys, how bad did it have to be that God would refer to his beloved city, Jerusalem, as the tyrannical city? And now listen to how stubborn and hard-hearted and blind the people had become. Verse 2. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. And here God indict then four specific groups of people. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Guys, these are leaders within the covenant community. These are men who are supposed to be leaders in righteousness, and they become leaders in iniquity. God is not pleased. They've abused their authority. We talked about this with Micah. They've abused their authority. They're practicing injustice. They're dominating and oppressing the people. And in that process, they've profaned the name of the Lord in his house. It's a grim picture that God is painting here at the beginning of Josiah's reign before these reforms come into play. Let's go back to chapter one now. Let's look at how Zephaniah now expands his vision to the entire planet. Judgment on the entire planet. Let's go to Zephaniah chapter 1, back up to verse 2. Guys, so far we've seen over and over again in the prophets how God is going to work through events in history. God uses other nations. He uses foreign armies. He uses calamities of all kinds, right, to enact his sovereign will. But hear this now. A day is coming when God will come to the earth and he will personally intervene as he did in the days of creation. Think about that. We're not talking about God now just you know, using the Babylonians as a tool. God himself returning to earth and intervening directly as he did in the days of creation. Think about that. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Scrape it. Wow. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Scholars look at this and say, this is the most awesome description of God's wrath that you will find anywhere in the Bible. The totality of the physical world will be consumed in his burning anger over sin. In fact, notice that this destruction is the reversal of creation. The original order was fish, birds, beast, and man, and now he flips it around. This Zephaniah is describing what we call a decreation. A decreation here. Drop down to verse 14. He continues. Listen to the language. Verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. 
A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I, the Lord, will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. I mean, do do I even have to provide commentary to that? Yikes. Let that language sink in for a moment. And then ask yourself the question, do you fear the Lord? Do you know him this morning? Because if not, this is is what you face. The wrath of God hangs over you. That's why we're always pleading here at Oak Hill to know the Lord, to be found in him, to take refuge in him. Otherwise, this is your end. And it's scary Now, Zephaniah has an exhortation for us this morning. There's good news in this book. I mean, that's pretty scary stuff, but there's good news. Turn back to chapter 2 now. Look at verse 1. Zephaniah exhorts us. He declares to his prophet that it's not too late for Judah to turn back in repentance. What should they do? Chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together, people. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord. All you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinance, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. What does Zephaniah mean? The Lord hides. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Friends, this advice is as sound today as it was in the 6th century B.C. Just as sound. Three things here that I want to point out. Number one, get self-awareness. Look in verse 1. It says, Judah is a nation without shame. They're clueless. What does it mean to be ashamed? In a biblical context, it means that It's that painful or uncomfortable feeling that you get inside your heart when you realize that you've sinned against the Lord. And Judah doesn't have it. They're not not self-aware. They don't even know that they're sinning against God. This is what they're missing, self-awareness. They have no shame that they'd abandon Yahweh in the covenant. I know I've said this a million times. I'll say it again. Self-awareness is such a critical thing for a Christian. To know yourself, to know God first of all, but then to know yourself, right? Both are so important. Seek out that knowledge of yourself. See if there's any shame through self-examination and prayer. Ask a friend or a discipler to help you. Walk up to a friend that you can trust and say, what do you see in my life? What can you see about my heart? What I love, what I desire, what I need. Help me see myself. Get self-awareness is what Zephaniah says here. Secondly, seek the Lord. That seems pretty basic, right? 
If you profess faith in him, if you trust in him, not just to be your savior, some quickie prayer so he's your savior, but your Lord as well, then put him in the place that he deserves. Live for his glory, not your own. Focus on what pleases him, not what pleases you. Trust is in his word, not leaning on your own understanding. Seek the Lord. And then third, look at how Zephaniah emphasizes humility in verse 3. He says, you humble of the earth. Guys, this is the distinguishing trait of every person who will escape the wrath of God. Humility. Humility. They will be lowly of mind and heart. They will be deniers of self for the sake of God and for others. Mark my word on this. There will not be one proud person in heaven. Not one. Pursue humility. At the end of verse 3, God says to the people of Judah, if you will repent of your sins, if you will turn back to me and you will seek after these things, then you'll be hidden from the wrath to come. It's as if he's saying, look, my anger will pass over you like the angel of death in the days of Moses in Egypt. You'll be hidden from the wrath to come. So when the day of the Lord comes, guys, there will be no place on the earth to escape to except one place to be found in Christ. There's no escape from the day of the Lord unless you are covered by Christ. Have you ever, have you ever um, seen the, the fire hot shots that get dropped out of planes and they put out wild brush fires? They have a special, I don't even know what you call it, bag that they had carry with them. If they get in a situation where they're trapped, they hit the ground and they throw this thing over themselves and it literally can allow the fire to pass over them. That's what Christ is in the day of wrath. He's a covering and a refuge. It's the only place that you'll escape. The judgment of God is to be found in Christ. He is the safe refuge in that day. Now let me close with some really great news. God has promised that in the end, even in that day of the Lord, there will be a, a remnant of worshipers in Judah. This is his promise. We actually covered this in our study in, in Romans. I'm going to put from Romans 9, our favorite chapter, remember? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel will be like sand of the sea. And the promise there, guys, is that there will always be a large number of Jews on the earth. God will see to it. But, he says, it is the remnant that will be saved. So a small number from among the many will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth, listen, thoroughly and quickly. That's the day of the Lord. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have been resembled Gomorrah. In other words, had God not faithfully fulfilled this promise to preserve a remnant, to preserve a peace, a people for himself, Israel and Judah would be no more. They would have been wiped from the earth. But God has promised to preserve his remnant. So here's what God says to that believing remnant. Turn over to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. And this, is, this stuff, I'm telling you, see these verses up here? Circle them, highlight them, study them at home. This is amazing stuff. Here's what God says to his believing remnant. And guess what? As Christians, we're going to be included in this. So pay close attention. God says this, Therefore, wait for me. Wait on the Lord, right? Isn't that good? 
for the day when I will rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So we're back to that, right? For then I will give to the people's purified lips. Where have you heard that before? Isaiah 6, where Isaiah's lips are purified in the presence of God. Can't stand before God unless you're holy, right? He says, I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which was sort of the boundary of the known world at that time, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Now look at verse 9 again. When Zephaniah says the peoples, I'm convinced that he's foreshadowing the inclusion of the Gentiles in this believing remnant. The peoples. Gentiles grafted into the olive tree of Israel as heirs to the promise given to Abraham to bless every nation. So in that day, Zephaniah says, all people will call on the name of the Lord. All who are not destroyed will call on the name of the Lord and they will bring sacrifices pleasing to him. Verse 11, in that day you will feel no shame because all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me for then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty or prideful on my holy mountain. Folks, the remnant's going to be saved and vindicated before the Lord on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And those who are proud, who declare their self-sufficiency, who say, I don't need God, they will be judged and destroyed. They will be removed from the midst of the faithful covenant community. And the rest, it says, will feel no shame. Why? How, how can we stand before God and feel no shame? For their sin and their rebellion will have been forgiven through Yeshua, the Messiah. That's it. That's it. That's why they can stand before God. Their sins have been wiped away by Jesus. Verse 12. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people. Once again, humility. This is what God intends to bring out in his people. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one, no one to make them tremble. Guys, in the ancient world, you were constantly trembling out of fear of a bigger nation. But here, finally, in that day, there will be both justice and peace in Judah. What a picture! But here's what I really want you to see. We tend to think of the day of the Lord as nothing but judgment. And it is a day of judgment. It's a day of wrath. But there's another piece to it. The day of the Lord will be a worldwide outpouring of salvation too. Both of those things are true. In fact, those two things, judgment and salvation, necessarily go hand in hand. They go together hand in hand. They must go together. In order to deliver us from our enemies, God must destroy them. In order to purify us, he must overthrow all sin and rebellion. In order for him to dwell in our midst, he has to remove all wickedness completely. So in order for us to be saved, judgment has to happen. God is fully loving and he is fully just. Now, the prophecy of, Jer of Zephaniah ends with this beautiful call to worship. If Grant were here, he'd be so pleased. 
Happy anniversary to Carly and Grant, by the way. Verse 14, here's our response. Shout for joy. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And here's why we ought to rejoice. Verse 15, because the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. Your sins removed. He has cleared away your enemies. You're at peace. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. Can you imagine a world where only true worshipers of God remain and King Jesus is in the midst of it all? This is amazing stuff, right? This is amazing stuff. And then verse 17, we'll end here. Here's, the, here's, here's where the promises culminate. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Guys, this answers the question that I asked at the very beginning. What does God think of you? Look at verse 17 again. What does God think of you? When his believing remnant are together, repentant, humble, lowly sinners, when they gather before God on his holy mountain and he himself is in their midst, what do you think God's going to do? What's he going to say? Is he going to look down and go, what a motley crew here? What a, what a terrible rabble of people that have gathered here on my holy mountain. Oh, they. Right? Is he going to be disappointed? Oh, yeah, I sort of thought it's going to be better than this. Is he going to be disappointed? Is he, is he just going to put up with us? No, look at verse 17. He's going to celebrate over his children with great joy. He will rejoice over believers as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. The text indicates that he will sing over his people. I want you to hear this today. God sings over you. If you're found in Christ, God sings over you. He exults over you. He rejoices in you. Why don't we accept that? Why do we, why do we constantly beat ourselves up? When we know that God says, if you will just confess your sins, I'm faithful and I'm righteous to cleanse you from all your sins, right? To take it away. He's, he's always there with open arms, right? And yet, what do we do? We hide from him. Oh, he's so mad at me. God rejoices over you. Come to him. If you're found in Christ, come to him because he wants to rejoice over you. We have to banish from our minds the idea that God begrudgingly allows us into his kingdom. That, that it's like, well, I found a loophole and I squeaked by. It's not the way it works. Remember, it's God himself, the very judge of all things, who put his son forward as a substitution and a sacrifice. That was his loving choice to do so for you and for me. So there's no begrudging to it. When we put our trust in Christ alone, God welcomes us like that father in the prodigal son story. Don't you love that picture? That's how God welcomes us. He puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. He shouts for joy. And he leads all of his guests in dancing and singing over you. 
over you because you've returned to him. But I'm too guilty, Jeff. I'm too dirty for God to rejoice over me. There's too much sin in my life. Look at verse 15 again. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Believe it. But I'm fighting a losing battle, Jeff. I'll never overcome the struggles that I'm fighting. Read verse 17 again. The Lord is a victorious warrior. He is for you. But he's so holy and he's so far from me. Believe verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is never far from you. He will never leave you and never forsake you. Um, Spurgeon once preached on this passage, and here's what he said about it. He said, he said, this passage is like a great sea, while I'm like a child making pools in the sand. And here's what he means by that. If we fully understood what this passage means, I mean fully understood how much God hates sin and how merciful he's been to us, not one person in this room would be casually sitting in their seat. Now, I know we don't fully understand it because we have limited vision right now, but if you fully understood his passionate zeal against sin and his passionate zeal and his love for you, not one of you would be sitting down right now. You would be standing and crying out in joy to God, or you would be on your knees weeping. That's what Spurgeon means. This passage is so big and so important for us. And he's like, I'm just a little child making pools in the sand. That's us until we see him face to face. And what a day that will be. Friends, this is the gospel of Zephaniah. Uh, right? This is the gospel in the old. We, don't we, don't we, te- we always make that mistake. Well, Old Testament this way, New Testament gospel. This is the gospel of Zephaniah. Sin, forgiveness, salvation, rejoicing over us. May the Lord give us a fresh understanding of this and a fresh appreciation for how much God loves us in Christ and what he has done for us on our behalf to be our refuge and to save us in the day of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray to him now.